It's 2022. Do you know where your consumer is? The Channel Mastery Podcast is created for executives who are obsessed with knowing everything about their target consumers, because that's what unlocks the future success and impact of our brands and businesses today. Every week on this podcast, we dig deep to bring you what's working and what's not when it comes to winning the attention of and building loyalty with your target consumer. We've got a lot to share, so let's get to it. And thanks so much to Verde Brand Communications for being the presenting sponsor of the Channel Mastery Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast, presented by Verde Brand Communications and Lifetime Incorporated, the producer of the Sea Otter Classic Executive Summit 2023. My guest today is perhaps the biggest proponent of what we do here every week, considering how to be remarkable to our consumer. In fact, that's part of the name of his book and is definitely the spirit behind his best-selling book, Remarkable Retail. Welcome to the show, author, podcaster, sought-after retail consultant and thought leader, Steve Dennis, principal of Sageberry Consulting. It's great to have you here today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I literally feel like we've won the lottery having you here in, you know, right about in September of 2022. We've been talking a lot on the podcast just about how brisk the change is out there in our markets. And you've literally written a great, I think it's not a blueprint. It's like a a formula you can apply as you're out there de-risking and making decisions as you're going along. Um, But before we get into your excellent uh, book, and and we're going to dive into that at length here today, can you tell our amazing audience all about your background and what you do at Sageberry Consulting? Sure. Well, uh, it's been a pretty long, strange trip. Sometimes I get asked how I ended up doing what I do, and I really have no idea. It's been a series of left and right turns along the way. But uh, I've pretty much been in retail most of my career. Early on, I was with a big consulting firm, and I spent a little bit of time in the food business. But really, for the last 30 years, pretty much been exclusively retail. The first part of that time was working my way up through various leadership positions at a couple of big retailers. First, uh, well, I guess they're not quite late and great, but they're getting there. I was I was at Sears for a good chunk of the 90s, uh, eventually getting up to the senior leadership team as they had a strategy. Uh, and then I came down to Dallas, where I live now, to be the chief strategy officer for the Neiman Marcus Group. And for the last, oh gosh, it's been 13 or 14 years now, I guess, I've been out on my own doing strategy and innovation consulting and Last four or five years, uh, adding to that, writing a book, as you mentioned, launching a podcast, and speaking all over the world on on retail strategy and innovation. Well, and you've, I'm going to put your, you know, links to your bio and obviously your LinkedIn and your book in our show notes. But you have, I think, quite a storied background. And I love in your book, you kind of explain it like you were in-house at Sears and then obviously at the Neiman Marcus Group. But at the Neiman Marcus Group, you were also heading up, I think, kind of the emerging channel, if you will. I know you don't like omni-channel. You prefer harmonize. (laughs) (laughs) Which I agree with. Yes, and we're going to get into that. But point being is you actually jumped into consulting, I think, with a very interesting diving board of sorts coming out of Neiman Marcus. And it was very early on in the game to be diving into kind of a future pace of retail at that time for that group. Would you agree? Uh, yes and no. Um, I actually, and this is sort of lost in the in the annals of history, I suppose, because of what's happened with Sears. 
But in 1999, I was named the vice president of multi-channel integration. So actually, you know, many years uh, really before Neiman Marcus. And one of the things our CEO at the time was really paying a lot of attention to was how digital technology and e-commerce was going to revolutionize uh, how we shop and in many cases, how we live. And we decided to make that an enterprise-wide initiative. So at that point, Sears already had a pretty sizable dot-com business, several hundred million dollars. And we were starting to figure out how to be really more uh, customer-centric rather than channel-centric. Now, as everybody probably knows, a lot of other things happened at Sears to make that not not the uh, most interesting part of the story. But our mantra, or our CEO's mantra at that point, was, uh, and sometimes when I do keynotes, I actually ask people who said this just to have them be surprised. But uh, what Arthur Martin has said was that the future of Sears would be increasingly determined by our ability to meet our customers' needs anytime, anywhere, anyway. January 1999, he said that. That's amazing. So that was a very forward-thinking uh, way. So I got to lead this initiative, and we worked on a lot of technology infrastructure, worked with our online business, worked with our CRM team to start to build out that foundation. So when I came down to the Neiman Marcus Group to essentially do the same sort of things, I was already steeped in some of the technology, some of the customer issues, kind of where things were going, uh, but you know, very different kind of company, very different kind of kind of brand, uh, very much one that was very siloed in its approach to the market. And so you obviously went through these. I, I mean, it's like getting an MBA at those two companies. Then you went out and applied everything, like one on one, with a lot of you know great, I think you know leadership focused uh, brands in retail. Um, I just have to ask, going through COVID must have been a little bit of shock and awe for you in terms of like what you saw prior to that and the acceleration that happened during that window. And I just thought I'd get your take on, not that we want to look in the rearview mirror for, you know, much further in this podcast, please hear me audience. But I do think it's just, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask all that you've seen from, you know, your entire career bundled into that like COVID window. And obviously we're still living through it, but like, can you just give us like maybe one or two takes on what that was like for you with like the body of work that you'd put in place prior to it? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure this is where you're going with your question because what I, what I, what sort of annoyed me the most, well, lots of things annoyed me about COVID, but from a retail (laughs) strategy standpoint, what annoyed me the most was, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, and we've talked about this on my podcast, and I talk about it all the time when I speak, is why does it take a crisis for retailers to innovate? Right. Almost everything that many of these retailers did that were behind was absolutely obvious to have been done many, many years earlier. We rolled out, for example, buy online, pick up and store at Sears in 2003. Wow. Um, You know, we were very much on top of this idea that this idea of different channels gets in the way of being successful, that digital drives physical, physical drives digital, um, and that the idea is to be customer-centric. So people sort of waking up to this, so to speak, just shows that they were asleep. So I get very animated about it because too many companies, I think, sort of pound their chest about how 
you know, we did all this stuff, you know, things that normally would take us six years, we got done in six weeks. And I'm like, well, congratulations, but you're six years too late. So, you know, so it just disappoints me that more boards, frankly, didn't fire some of these CEOs because they clearly didn't understand. Very few things happened in COVID from a strategy standpoint that weren't completely predictable. Obviously, things like having to close stores and appointment shopping and some of these other things, you know, those are very specific to COVID. And a lot of people made, um, being a little too ranty here, but, you know, a lot of other things was, oh, there's this massive acceleration. Well, actually, there's been very little acceleration if if you actually look at it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because a lot of the behavior just sort of reverted to the trend we were on anyway. So, you know, there were a lot of very COVID-specific things that needed to be done. But when you come from at it from a strategy standpoint, uh, you know, the companies that did those things early, like Tractor Supply, Best Buy, Target, you know, are kicking everybody's butt. Those mm-hmm. that waited too long and watched the last 20 years happen to them, as I like to often say, um, you know, that are sort of patting themselves on the back by all this innovation. Mm, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not very impressed by that. Uh, And the question will be, okay, will you not make the same mistake again? Will you continue to innovate uh, rather than have to, you know, basically have a gun put to your head and be fear, you know, fearful of going out of business to make those kinds of changes? So maybe not the answer you want, but. I like that answer better, honestly, because it's more honest and it really kind of holds us accountable to what we can do when we're willing to take risks and actually do a different approach not only because we have to, but because because we know we are consumers at heart. We are living this and breathing this as we are being catered to by our favorite brands every day and as we're solving right. for things every day. So we're seeing it. It, it is in our outdoor rec um, marketplace, if you will. <laughs> we have our own things that I like to say make, make us special snowflakes, but they really don't because we all roll up to the same consumer. And right. by that, I mean like, oh, we have to get, you know, preseason orders. We have 18 months to develop a brand new ski boot or backpack or RV. And honestly, there are, there's a version of that in every single category of retail and outdoor rec or consumer packaged goods. So like, sure. I actually am right, right there with you. And I appreciate the correction, frankly. And you're also, you're perfect. Your timing is so perfect because I wanted to ask you about kind of the state of, of the great weirdness is what I've been calling it <laughs> of 2022, because, you know, here we are like, the bullwhip effect, like you're seeing this, the headlines in Target and in Best Buy and all of these retailers who are trying to deal with, you know, being saddled with inventory glut as just one of many levers and pressures that we're, that we're operating through right now. But I have to tell you, Steve, like I'm seeing and hearing a lot of our really important larger chain specialty shops in Outdoor Rec are getting absolutely hammered by this. And we're starting to see the emails like at the beginning of, you know, late August, early September around Labor Day sales that we've never seen before. And to me, that is, you know, going back to what we've known to solve a problem and not trying to innovate in the face of yet another crisis. So that is like kind of the context I wanted to talk with you about today, because we have this great opportunity to have your mind and apply it to this problem that we're living through right now. And it's an opportunity. So you always like to say in your book, and I love it, the consumer is the channel. I'd Mm -hmm. love to have you maybe talk with the audience around just we're going to get into the eight essentials framework. Why was it important to you to bring it to the world? And like, how have you had to update it? Or maybe you haven't, 
because they're really solid principles that can apply in any situation. I just would love to kind of hear your take on it before we dive in and apply it to like today's backdrop. Sure. Well, you know, really the motivation for writing the book and for developing the eight essentials framework um, gets back a little bit to what I was saying was that I felt like a lot of retailers, particularly, I mean, the book is really for retailers that are struggling to innovate. The retailers that are already remarkable probably don't need this book uh, as much as I'd like them to, to buy it and, and share it. But, um, mm-hmm. but you know, what I saw really going back probably 20 years was that retail was starting to change in a very fundamental way. And, you know, most of that has to do with digital technology, not, not all of it. But if you think about it, you know, in the mid-90s, not to give too much of a history lesson, something like 98% of all retail took place in a physical store. There was a small mail-order catalog business. But retail was all about the customer going someplace to see something, maybe getting some sales help, picking it out, hopefully paying for it, and taking it home. That was what physical retail was about. And that was also the era, generally, where you had these category killers you know, we're building these, you know, whether it was Home Depot, Circuit City, you name it, building these big stores, displaying a lot of stuff. And it was very convenient for the customer to go there because they could see everything all at once, right? That was that was the business model. But as the internet started to become a thing, that that not only did you not necessarily have to go somewhere, but having these very expensive boxes to display all this inventory increasingly became less of of an advantage, which is why you've seen Toys R Us go out of business, all the struggles at Bed Bath & Beyond, Circuit City. You know, you can kind of go through many of these retailers that were fabulously successful in the 80s and 90s that have struggled to stay in business or struggled to stay relevant. And uh, most retailers, at least the bigger ones, are very slow to respond to change, which is probably a whole other podcast episode. And so... (laughs) Uh, and, and I guess I also started to see some of these narratives like physical retail is dead or, you know, talking about e-commerce as a thing separate from regular commerce. And I just felt like, number one, I wanted to kind of explain how we got to where we are, what's important, what's nonsense versus useful. But more importantly, give, um, I want to say a formula, it's not really a formula, but give a framework to help retailers navigate to this new world. Uh, But the biggest idea in the book, I think, and the reason why it's called Remarkable Retail, is this idea, which I really stole from somebody else, that even very good is not good enough anymore. You know, in a world where you've got abundant choices, very little friction, the, the ability for consumers to find information about products, prices, go back and forth, between different choices in a nanosecond as opposed to having to drive a half an hour, go up the escalator, run around to a bunch of stores, even being very good is not the source of competitive advantage. You really have to aim much higher and create that much more distance or you're likely to just be lost among all the noise. And I think that's what we've seen is some very good retailers objectively have really struggled to stay relevant. So I I wanted to kind of light a fire underneath people help them understand kind of where we are, where we're going, but mostly give them some hopefully pragmatic advice to to execute, you know, potentially a very different kind of strategy. 
I love that. And I think it's much needed and it can apply, I think, to any category of retail. So I really think what you've put together is definitely, you know, a game changer here. Um, and again, we have you here. So like, let's get into the meat and potatoes what, of what I think a lot of our executives <laughs> want to get sure. to. Um, let's say they have the opportunity to sit down with you right now. And they're looking at kind of um, inflation, deflation, uh, inventory glut. Uh, they, I hear there's just semi-truck after semi-truck of, yeah. of, of product that is nowhere to go in these warehouses. They're getting it off season. Um, there obviously are a lot of alligators close to the boat. It's tough to even prioritize <laughs> which one to address first. So right. let's, let's hear from you. Like, I know we're going to go through the eight essentials. It may not be in order, everyone. Just know that the link to the book and everything will be in the show notes. But let's talk about like if you're sitting down with a, a retail executive today who is heading into their most important moments before now and the end of the year with all of these pressures, you know, where would you start within this framework? Well, one of the things I say in the book is, and this is one of the, uh, the challenges, I guess, of, of an industry as big and diverse as retail is, that it's very hard to say, you know, there's one specific answer because companies are in very different situations. But mm -hmm. I mean, the main thing I think to do is be very, very honest about where you stand relative to the customers you are trying to retain, grow, and acquire. So I often say, you know, do, do that diagnostic and understand where you really stand and why you, if you have struggles, why you are struggling to grow on a, on a pretty specific basis. And hopefully you can, by doing that, you can start to identify the levers you can pull. Um, you know, that, that's really sort of mapping out the, the path you're going to take. If you're lucky, you will find one or two things that can address a wide swath of, of some of those issues. So I wouldn't even say the eight essentials framework in and of itself is the place to start. You really need to take a hard look at what your strengths and weaknesses are and where you stand with customers and where you can get the, the most leverage moving forward. You know, is that about selling one more item to customers you already have? Is that about maybe being able to take some margin with certain customers because they already love you? Um, so, I mean, that's the first place I would start. As it relates to the eight essentials, one of the things I talk about in the book is of the eight, Six of them I call more table stakes. And what I mean by that is if you aren't doing them pretty well relative to your competition, there's a pretty good chance you are at a disadvantage. So if, you know, for example, you have a terrible digital presence, chances are that that's a real problem relative to your competition. And that may be a gap you need to close very, very quickly. And it's possible that unfortunately, because of their table stakes, you know, sometimes just doing them at a decent level actually gets you very little, right? Because mm -hmm. you're just the same as everybody else and you've closed that gap. So, you know, that can also be very frustrating. And unfortunately, though, that's, that's often what a lot of companies that are struggling do. They think, wow, I'll just close this gap and everything will be great. But unfortunately, unfortunately that doesn't mean you're going to win. Right. So the seven and eight are really more differentiators. So I call one of them memorable and the other one radical. And that's where the places, or those are the places where hopefully you can really generate competitive advantage. So everybody's really got to do kind of this diagnostic assessment of where they stand, 
where they have the best opportunity to get some leverage. Uh, you know, in many cases, obviously, you've got to figure out how much risk is there, how much investment is it going to take, and try to prioritize that to get the right the right kind of momentum. So a lot of these things are kind of building blocks to success that everybody's going to have to look at. The unfortunate thing with this inventory glut is, you know, you got to deal with it, right? I mean, uh, particularly if it's seasonal merchandise, like, you know, fish doesn't get any better, you know, as, as time passes, right? And that, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. true <laughs> of a lot of uh, fashion merchandise or seasonal merchandise. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's just a very unfortunate reality that we've gotten to this place where there's such a glut and, you know, discounting is just going to be rampant. And if you're in that environment, you kind of have to have to deal with it. But that's where I think you've got to strike this balance between the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month operating things you have to do versus keeping your, or not versus, but in addition, you know, making sure you're thinking longer term, have that true north that you're trying to get to and, and try to try to balance those. But I just think, you know, we're unfortunately in this really, I don't know, I, I don't even want to say things are weird anymore. It's just, you know, the next normal or the next weirdness or, or whatever. Because as soon as I say, oh, this is a really unusual time, then six months later, we're in a different kind of really unusual, unprecedented or whatever whatever time. But I think the next six months are going to be really, really challenging for just about everybody in retail, unfortunately. So Lifetime Sea Otter Classic Summit 2023 is joining Faraday Brand Communications as our sponsor for this new year. The goal is to deliver the solutions and best-in-class resources presented to executives in the outdoor recreation industries at the summit to you every week on the Channel Mastery Podcast. And we couldn't be more excited to exceed your expectations on that goal every week. So at the summit earlier this year in April 2022, right before the Sea Otter Classic, we gathered over 200 executive leaders from the outdoor, bike, endurance, and vehicle-supported adventure markets for two days of business intelligence, specialty market resourcing, and peer networking. It was awesome because it happened right before the Sea Otter Classic, which literally had about 80,000 consumers there. And guess how many people camped at the Sea Otter for multiple nights? Almost 7,000. Okay, this is a a very special consumer event and to have this right before it is huge. We're going to share all the details on the 2023 summit in a very uh, near-term episode here and watch, uh, we'll be announcing things from a marketing standpoint, but I just wanted to make sure and thank Lifetime and Verde Brand Communications. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And uh, what would success look like for a large, larger like chain of stores that are still very specialty? Because this is literally like where a, a lot of brands have a big percentage of their revenue, right? And they're seeing things getting shipped back and canceled. That's on the brand side. And on the retail right. side, the consumer is seeing a lot of sales on mm-hmm. really specialty high-end product that, um, and obviously, like you said, you have to deal with it in order to like right-size what's going on in your company from a retail standpoint. Um, But I guess if you really go back to like being remarkable to the consumer and the consumer being the channel, um, that's really the quandary I think they're in. I love your advice around like, you know, keep your eye on the prize, keep making um, your advances on the strategic plan that later, literally you've laid out for exceptional retail here. But at the same time, like, if they have to look at what they mean to the consumer today during the lens of like this promotion window, 
I don't know how they're going to get a really clear look at that. It just seems like we're at a real inflection point in terms of like understanding how to be remarkable to your consumer when you kind of have to deal on the level that a lot of these retailers are dealing. There has to be some ways to do it. And I know everybody's kind of looking at the levers they've always pulled. And I would love it if you could just share some ideas with, with with the listeners here today. Well, number one, I think, which is actually one of the essentials, which I call personal, is this idea of treating different customers differently. So, which is easier said than done for sure. But, but you know, you don't necessarily have to offer the same discount to everybody. Uh, you know, there are ways to be more strategic about that. You know, one of the problems with these broad-based promotions is that in many cases, you give customers that don't need such a discount to purchase an extra discount, which is just giving margin away. Mm -hmm. Or in other cases, customers that need a bigger discount still don't get enough, so you don't move them. So to the extent you can somehow tailor or kind of semi-customize some of your promotions, that's a way of not getting too caught up in the race to the bottom, which, you know, we're, that's just, going to be sort of the the broad macro trend, I I think, here for a little bit. The second thing is, I would not miss an opportunity to remind people of what makes you special. So, you know, it's very hard unless you're Costco or Amazon to own price. Like, that's not going to be the key value proposition for most of the people listening to, to this podcast, right? That's not the source of competitive advantage and as I quote in the book, my friend Seth Godin says, you know, the problem with a race to the bottom is you might win or even worse, finish second. So trying to, to quote that from your book. <laughs> yeah, so, so trying to find those ways to remind people of, you know, to emphasize that special value you bring, unique product, unique service, you know, an environment. I mean, one of the advantages potentially, and this is, you know, definitely trying to put a, a positive spin on a difficult situation is, you know, it may be that by offering very significant discounts, you get customers into your store or to your website that may not know you, right? And so, you know, it may be seen as more of a loss leader, but it could be a good way to get some trial, or maybe it's somebody who hasn't shopped with you in a while. Use that opportunity to remind them of why they should come back, right? You know, if you're just thrown out there in the world of commodities, with the lowest price, then yes, that might move some product and might put a little bit of cash in the till and save you some storage costs or whatever, but it's not advancing your brand. So I would, I would, you know, not necessarily, and I'm not saying people are doing this, just sit there and whine about it, but say, okay, how can we turn a, a largely negative situation into an opportunity to expose our brand to more customers or to remind existing customers of what makes us special, which hopefully will pay off over the long term. Right. I love that. And there are two clients on Verity's roster who really had a big growth in business. I mean, all of our clients did throughout direct through COVID, but two of them really like embraced the masks and the PPP, you know, everything around mm-hmm. that. And they grew a huge number of new followers that may or may not have been ingrained in their brand. And this might be a time to like get back in front of them, for example. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it because many, if not all of the executives tuning into this show have seen huge growth. It's part of the reason why we have the bullwhip happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, I guess I really just wanted to 
I love the way you're saying it. And I've been saying, you know, remember to stay special and don't, you know, don't put your brand on sale at every every touch point for the consumer. But what I'm hearing from you, and I love it, it's like work every time you're in front of this consumer and make sure that you're almost pork barreling in what's special about you with this sale. I love it. I think that's yeah. a really, really good idea, the storytelling. Well, and the thing I would add, and you know, this as an option, when I was at Neiman Marcus, uh, the financial crisis was was brewing way back in 2008. And there was all of a sudden a lot of inventory. And actually, uh, I left around that time and I was working with some clients that were navigating through the glut of inventory. And in that particular case, Neiman's decided, and I don't know necessarily this was the right decision, but Neiman's pretty much decided not to discount all that extensively, whereas Saks Fifth Avenue, our evil competitor, uh, decided that they were going to move quickly and just move through inventory. Now, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened since then. It's difficult to parse out. But, you know, you could make the argument that Saks taught their customers that the regular price isn't really the price uh, and that greater discounts can be had, whereas Neiman's really stuck to its guns. It was very painful uh, in the short term for Neiman's to do that uh, from a revenue standpoint. Um, but from a branding and positioning standpoint, it, it definitely reinforced the more, you know, we're not a discounter, you know, make a deal kind of kind of thing. So it's a, it's a very tough call, I think, to make when you're, you know, you've got this near-term pressure to turn inventory into cash. So I don't want to make it sound like it's a black and white sort of decision. But um, if you've got the financial capacity to take, you know, leave a little bit of money or a little bit of cash, I guess, probably a better way of saying it, on the table, it might really reinforce your brand position and not put you kind of into the mainstream uh, price discounting kind of world, which is, you know, ultimately not where you want to be if you can avoid it. Absolutely. Um, so as I'm looking at, I think that's a really great jumping off point around to my next question, which is, you know, prior to COVID, I think in our markets, we would have, you know, some of the legacy wholesale brands looked to retail to be the theater for their brands and to really talk with the consumer on behalf of their brand, right? And I think that there are still a lot of brands who like to prioritize specialty retail and support that, but they realized through COVID that they it was really their responsibility to grow audiences and grow brand and then empower the consumer to choose the channel they want to embrace or you know mm-hmm. discover or buy from this brand. Where do you think we're netting out now as potentially like considering the alligators around the boats and retail and brands? <laughs> do, do, how do you think uh, we were sitting in terms of like, who is responsible for that storytelling? And I, I know it seems so obvious, but in our markets, Steve, it really isn't. There is such a um, allegiance between brand to retailer and for retailers to be telling that story. And I know in your mm-hmm. book, you talk all about how digital first brands are expanding through physical retail. So I just would love to get your take on kind of where you see that now in terms of that um opportunity to create new consumers and to tell stories to them and kind of where where that is now going forward? Well, uh, hopefully I'm answering your question. I mean, I think first, manufacturers, I believe, are generally going to push as far as they can on the direct-to-consumer uh, strategy. 
uh, you know, the ability to go direct to consumer, to have that data, to have a direct relationship with the consumer, uh, to potentially have greater margins. I'll come back to that in a second. But I, but I think it's, you know, there have been enough examples of, of brands, you know, Nike's probably the one that gets the most press nowadays, um, you know, moving in that direction and controlling that experience. But we saw this back with uh, a lot of our vendors when I was at Neiman Marcus, were opening, they were very slow on e-commerce, but, you know, the Louis Vuittons and Chanel's of the world were opening their own store because they got to control that end experience. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I think any great retailer uh, is able to do things that, you know, manufacturers can't necessarily so easily easily, easily do. Um, so my general statement is that I think there's this sort of gravitational pull towards direct-to-consumer that is likely to continue. And I think most brands are going to push that as far as they can go. Mm-hmm. So one, I think you've got to really, as a retailer, understand you know, more precisely how it is you add value in a unique way. Sometimes that's providing reach that, you know, the manufacturers are never going to be able to, to replicate. But in other cases, it's, you know, being much closer to the customer, um, having multi-line, right? Because, you know, a Nike store or a Columbia store or whatever, uh, you know, it's one brand. And so, you know, from my Neiman Marcus experience, we clearly had customers that really liked being able to put an outfit together, not de- dress head to toe in a particular vendor, right? So mm-hmm. that, is the, that is the value potential value of a multi-line retailer. So you have to think very carefully about how you do that. Um, I did work with um, an association that was a manufacturer's association uh, that was dealing with, or I mean, sorry, a specialty retailers association that was dealing around, around a lot of these issues. And there was just a lot of whining, basically. And I understood it because it's very frustrating uh, that your business is, is potentially being challenged by some of your vendor partners and, and so forth. But at the same time, it's the reality and it's annoying, but you have to accept it and make the best of it. And like I say, I think there's this gravitational pull. The thing that I think was, one of the things that I think is going to happen, and we're starting to see this already, and if folks haven't checked this out, Simeon Siegel, who's an equity analyst at, at BMO, has written extensively on this, is this wholesale DTC kind of debate is not nearly as clear as people think. I think there's been this idea that anything that can go direct may end up going direct. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're seeing, whether we're talking about the digitally native brands or just some of the struggles of of manufacturers is it's actually pretty expensive, both in terms of investment, uh, you know, physical stores, uh, but mostly in marketing to, to go direct to consumer and and some of these kind of margin comparisons you know people are focused on gross margin too much not the end margin which is ultimately you know what pays the bills so I, I think we're gonna see that some of this push to direct to consumer uh, isn't so black and white uh, but I do think that the tendency of manufacturers to push in that direction will continue for a while which puts pressure on retailers to really figure out how they can add value in potentially some new and different ways. So sorry, that was a very long-winded answer to, to a simpler question. No, it's fine. And I've been really like asking my questions. There's like four questions in each one. So thank you for your patience. I'm just excited to have you here as a resource. So I'm trying to like pack as much in as I can. Did you speak to what you wanted to on the margin front? Because that is 
so top of mind and has been for some time with brands and retailers. There's just less and less of that to play with. And then you did talk a lot about kind of the middleman in your book, if you will. Like, so I just thought I'd see if you had anything to add on that front. Well, you know, one of the unfortunate things, well, maybe not for consumers, but for retailers and brands is, you know, the internet just makes it a lot easier to understand price, you know, the price you might pay. I think, you know, there's going to continue, I mean, once we get past hopefully the inventory glut relatively quickly, you know, the effect of e-commerce or just digital accessibility more broadly tends to put downward pressure on margins because it's so easy for consumers to see the price they should pay or what deals are out there. And, you know, you get in kind of this auction sort of mentality sometimes between retailers, you know, people using algorithms to change their pricing and all that kind of stuff. So, so unfortunately, I think in general, there's this pressure, downward pressure on margins. So I think that puts even more uh, or should create more emphasis on trying to understand where you can create, you know, value added opportunities with customers. But again, I would go back to what I said earlier about trying to treat different customers differently. You know, a lot of times these sort of uniform pricing strategies or uniform promotional strategies don't really allow you to treat different customers differently uh, because not every customer is equally price sensitive, right? Other customers are willing to pay a premium because they really value service or the ambiance or whatever it might be. So a lot of this, you know, it's such a cliche to say, uh, I was just on a call earlier though with somebody from a, a very large retailer where we're just talking about how, even though everybody says it, we often don't really understand our customers very well. And, you know, I think that's always needs to be the heart of where you start is, is understanding the customer, but you need to do it in a way that, you know, understands the emotional triggers as much as just sort of the functional triggers and understands or tries to understand, you know, the difference between customers you're seeking to acquire versus customers you're seeking to grow versus customers you're seeking to retain or, or share your story. So, I mean, there's a granularity, I think of, of, customer insight that often doesn't doesn't happen at a lot of retailers which is you know it's surprising to me given how we talk about being customer first and customer centric and we have all these new tools um, that allow us to to get that level of detail but a lot of retailers don't apply it very well hmm, that's so interesting and I know we need to look to wrap up here but if you look at map pricing through the lens of what you just said, Maybe that's something we need to revisit as we're moving forward in these partnerships between brand and retailers in terms of like a one size fits all from a point of fairness. I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I have very mixed feelings on that. I mean, I do think that that having um, map pricing or, you know, sort of manufacturer suggested pricing, whatever, at least, um, you know, creates sort of the ceiling on pricing. And in some cases, and again, you know, I spent a lot of time in the luxury industry where generally speaking, the price is the price, unless you're into seasonal markdowns. And that's sort of helpful because the consumer starts to understand that there isn't, for the most part, a, you know, there's used and other, other ways to get the product perhaps, but, you know, you're not going to get a better deal on the product anywhere else for the most part. So then the retailers get to add their value in ways 
other than just the price or who's got the hottest deal this weekend or free shipping or, you know, you name it. So I think there's some value to that um, just in terms of simplicity, but, you know, it doesn't always serve everybody's strategy as well as you'd like. And, you know, it doesn't make you as agile as you sometimes need to be. I think that might be the takeaway from 2022. And you would think that we would be pretty darn agile by this point, and we still have more to go. Um, So I really want to highly, highly recommend your book. It is very understandable. It's engaging. I listened to it and I also bought, you know, a copy to read and make notes on. And I just want to say like, it's a fantastic read. And I do feel like it's something you don't need to come out with a third edition really quickly to like meet the needs of 2022. Um, So, you know, talk a little bit about kind of just the evergreen framework of it, if you will, before we wrap up here today. Well, I certainly like to think it's going to have some some longevity. I haven't really felt, you know, I worked on the first edition or wrote most of the first edition in the latter part of uh, 2019. And when I did the second edition, I, you know, mostly I didn't really fundamentally change the the advice. I just kind of did a little reset because this obviously this big thing called COVID happened and it just seemed <laughs> weird not to have uh, reflected it. And I did delve into a few things that uh, were sort of specific to the effects of the pandemic. But, you know, I think when it comes, I mean, I just, I just in general feel like the pace of change is going to continue to accelerate, that for the most part, the things that made us successful in the past aren't likely to serve us very well going forward, that the world is going to continue to be pretty volatile, you know, hopefully a little less volatile than we've seen uh, the last year or two, but uh, you know, it's just a more dynamic, complex world. And so that puts a premium on really, really raising the bar uh, higher in terms of your performance, moving more quickly, uh, adapting faster, being bolder, frankly. I mean, I think one of the, we touched on this a little bit, but one of the things that I see, and it's it's actually kind of some of the stuff I'm delving into in the book that I'm working on now, is that a lot of retailers talk about transformation but they really engage in a pretty timid transformation, um, you know, which is a bit of an oxymoron, right? But yes. when we actually look at what counts as innovation at many companies, it's really pretty incremental, what I call the slightly better version of mediocre. And that's just not going to cut it. Um, it. I mean, I don't think it cuts it for the most part right now. But if you see the trajectory we're on in terms of, you know, increasing competition, you know, technology changing constantly. You know, I don't think the metaverse is going to be a big thing anytime soon, but, you know, we're moving into, you know, lots of different possibilities uh, and ways we're going to be connected. And, you know, who knows what technology is going to be important in three or four years. So Mm -hmm. if you're not aiming higher, acting more boldly, building uh, flexibility into your operating model, thinking of your business more as a platform rather than a channel or a store or whatever, you know, you really risk becoming irrelevant. And that, you know, again, it gets back to why I read the book in the first place. I just felt like there were so many great retailers that were, you know, the proverbial frog slowly boiling in water that, you know, we're going to lose the opportunity to, to stay relevant, to stay in business in many cases, if they didn't understand how profoundly and how, in many cases, quickly they actually need to change. Well, I love the way you put it at the at the end of the book. It's a compass, not a map. 
And I love that it's a journey and this compass can guide you. I also think it's a way for teams to really come together and and work across, like you mentioned in the book, there might be a legacy setup within a brand or a retailer that's like, here's our e-com group. Here's, you know, like those should be together to create the most, you know, consumer-centric experience. So like, there's just so many things that I think this would be a, a relevant read for you and your teams as you're kind of looking to navigate, finish 2022 strong and really set a relevant transformational strategy leading going into 2023. So I just want to thank you for that. I'm excited to see what this new book is. Will you please tell the audience where we can find this book in your podcast and more about you? Sure. Well, uh, if you Google Steve Dennis and retail, you'll see a bunch of stuff, but probably the most straightforward way is to go to my website, which is Stephen with a V, P as in Peter, Dennis.com. And I'm generally at Stephen P. Dennis on social media. Awesome. And he has great LinkedIn content as well. So thank you again. And I really look forward to having you back as we kind of continue to step through this tenuous time together. And I just feel like our audience is so perfect for your book because we are specialty. And you really talk about being remarkable. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have communities if we didn't have the drive to be remarkable to our communities. And I just feel like this is a great rallying cry and a great compass for us. So thank you again for this awesome book. Well, thank you. You're very kind. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. We'll see you here in the future on uh, Channel Mastery. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Channel Mastery podcast. Please give us a thumbs up if you like what you hear. Share it with a colleague or friend. And also make sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. 